key to life. Hello, this is Sekou Burmese, your host of The Lit Review, a podcast brought to you by the Academy of Management Journal. In this podcast, we dive into the insights of recent research published in the journal and interview authors and corporate leaders to discuss the inspiration for research ideas and how insights from this research applies to current pressing issues in organizations and markets. This episode, I speak with Matt Semedeni, Professor of Strategy and Dean's Council Distinguished Scholar at the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University. In our conversation today, we talk about a recent paper he's published in AMJ looking at CEO political ideology. We discuss how political activism has shaped corporate leadership, strategy, and investing, which pulls the conversation in all sorts of interesting directions, as you can imagine. But we end with Matt sharing his views about how organizations can approach politics by recognizing ideological differences, but avoiding many of the negative, contentious behaviors that follow. I hope you will enjoy this episode of The Lit Review and my discussion with Matt Semedeni. My guest today on The Lit Review podcast is Matt Semedeni a professor of strategy in the Dean's Council Distinguished Scholar Professor of Strategy and Dean's Council Distinguished Scholar at the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University. Matt has been published extensively, I mean extensively, a lot of publications on the topics of competitive strategy, corporate strategy, knowledge, and top management teams. Now, aside from his research, uh, Professor Semedeni also uh, has worked with a number of top corporations such as Starbucks, Google, and the Mayo Clinic. And he's also the associate editor at AMJ uh, immediately preceding my cohort. And so uh, I have the honor of of filling his very large shoes as an associate uh, editor here at AMJ. Uh, Hello, Matt, and welcome to the Lit Review Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so we're going to dive in. I'd like to start by discussing a a recent AMJ paper that you published with M.K. Chin and Ryan Krauss on a topic that is very popular now in general and even within academia, and that's around political ideology. And so in this paper, you and your co-authors explore how political ideology shapes firm strategic responses. Now, there's been a good amount of research over the last 10 years kind of showing how CEO ideology shapes how firms make these strategic decisions. And that has been very fruitful. Uh, What you and your co-authors do, which I find really interesting, is recognize that this doesn't happen in a vacuum and that there's a larger political climate uh, that CEOs have to deal with while also kind of figuring out what they should do based on their own ideology. And so your paper looks at kind of this divergence between the personal CEO ideology and the overall political climate. Um, So before we get into the paper, I'd just like to ask, uh, what got you interested in the topic of CEO political ideology? Well, thank you so much for having me. And this is a great opportunity to talk about this research. I, you know, I think the very beginning was when uh, MK came and presented a paper when I was at Indiana on political ideology. You know, obviously, we live in an environment that has politics infused and increasingly so. But when he started talking about some of his findings and how those really drove a lot of uh, executive decisions, it really made me interested in the topic. And then he reached out and we we collaborated on a piece looking at um, compensation, in particular, the, the compensation of the direct reports to the CEO 
as a function of the CEO's political ideology and found some pretty interesting results there. And so we had done that. But um, the the overall effect of, of political ideology, I've just found it fascinating because we talk a lot about CEO characteristics. We talk, you know, what's their background? What's their functional background? How tall are they? You know, <laughs> just all these various things. Yep. But one of the one of the primary drivers is what is their belief system? Yeah. And the political ideology is fundamental to that and really, really helps to shape the decision making that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And in a way that that isn't linear and isn't uh, always predictable. And yeah. so I found that fascinating. No, that's great. That's great. I'll leave my own personal biases alone, which are I'm also very interested in this, but wanted to hear your path uh, into this into this world. So in your view, what, what were the key takeaways or the key findings from the paper that you 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 hope that uh, readers will will take away? Well, I you know, I think that it uh, the the big one is that the context matters. And I know as organizational scholars, we we know that fundamentally it's not really a, a great big aha. But a lot of the research leading up to this, as you said, had kind of treated that as a, a political ideology as it operated in a vacuum or simply controlled for the environment. And 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 on we went to look at, at a number of different outcomes. But when we got together, we really started talking about how the the context in which the CEO is operating is going to affect is going to interact in interesting ways how the with the CEO's political ideology and one of the things that really really kind of jumped out at me is i was going through some websites and looking at different things uh, a number of years ago i think it was probably around uh, 2018 mm-hmm. and i came ac- upon this chart that had the return to equity and the return to bonds from the inception of the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And it looked at um, what had been that return. And it was so stark. It was so stark. There was a, you know, if you uh, had invested $1 in, um, uh, in equities at the beginning of the Trump administration, you now had a $42, over $42 of return. If you had invested $1 in bonds, at the beginning, you now had a dollar fifty in returns. So that's twenty-seven <laughs> times the return. Yeah. And I, I'm not making a, I'm not making a case for the, you know, the Trump or the, anything other yeah. than there was a huge divergence. Yeah. And then, as almost a throwaway in this article, the the author noted that following the Trump uh, election, that by and large, liberal, uh, more liberal leaning investors got out of equities because they believed that the stock market was on the verge of collapse mm-hmm. and more conservative leaning um, uh, investors got into equities because they saw this as an opportunity. Yep. And I, that just blew my mind that you would see such a divergence there in the returns based on just a simple set of means ends uh, relationships there. And it, it really just kind of blew my mind. And then I started digging in more and I found that this, this had um, happened before during the Obama administration Mm. that when Obama, that it reversed and, and that, that uh, conservatives largely got out of the equity markets and and so forth. And so this, this kind of captured my imagination that you had, that you that you have this effect. Then, in addition to that, we we looked at it, it's like, well, does the CEO really believe this? And so we looked at whether or not they could benefit from mm. 
these returns. And we found that when they were most likely to benefit is when this effect was the strongest. So this is a real belief. This isn't just kind of a, a stated belief, but they they are actually um, in, in their heart of hearts, they believe something else. And then also that in the uh, industry, the industry uh, provides may provide some structure that buffers them a little bit from these effects mm-hmm. and and that the more regulated the industry is the less likely that they're going to get you know buffeted by the um by the change in political administration and so forth you know along those lines i think uh, so first i i think it's absolutely true that it sometimes blows my mind that a person's personal preference will have material market effects and maybe this is because i grew up with a very economics focused mindset on how markets went. And then every time I realized, oh no, people are acting on things other than profit maximization per se, mm-hmm. you know, singularly. Uh, and those things kind of really fascinate me. Um, now you, in the paper, you guys talk about threat. And so mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you you think about threat and how the response to threat, because that's the big behavior, right? That, um, mm-hmm. that, that you focus on. It is. And and just before I, I jump into that, it's interesting because initially we had this framed as almost an overconfidence. Well, and we, we say in the discussion that, that it could be overconfidence mm-hmm. as well. If we flip the relationship, we say if, if it aligns, now you're going to go all in. But I had a, a conversation with one of my um, micro colleagues here at, um, at, at ASU, and he said, you know, it's a lot it's probably a lot easier theoretically to argue for the threat than mm-hmm. it is to argue for overconfidence and and o- over specifying the opportunity. So that's yeah. why we went one of the things we went with threat, and we found that that aligned very much with uh, the, from the from the research it very much aligned in terms of information constriction and resource trying to to amass resources. And with information constriction, we really looked at that as search through mm-hmm. R&D spending, mm-hmm. that once they see or they perceive this threat, they're going to constrain their R&D spending because they don't see the opportunity, they're going to constrain that information search. And then because they perceive the threat, they're going to start to amass resources so that they can they can be protected against that threat. Of, of course, the opposite is true also, that when you see an opportunity, then you you start searching more, more mm-hmm. readily and, and then you might actually start spending money rather than uh, trying to amass that. So if I have this right, just so I can, in layman's terms, right? Um, mm-hmm. If I'm a CEO and let's say I am uh, more liberal leaning, and our government becomes run by uh, you know a liberal president, house of whatever it might be, the firm that I run is going to be more um, is going to appear less threatened. I.e., they're going to invest mm-hmm. in R and D. They're going to be out there like, hey. It's about to get really good. Let's be set up for the really great times that are about to happen. Whereas if it's the reverse, you constrict. You say like, hey, let's kind of collect our our, our beans here and keep mm-hmm. them protected because we're about to go uh, through, a, through, a, through a tough cycle. And right. in both of those, would you say it's overblown? Like people react too negatively or too positively or... That's that's what I love. And I, I you know, you stated a moment, the economic case and the the bottom line, and I know you know this from your research, it has 
it has no effect. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are opportunities, there are threats, things go up, things go down, but you cannot, if if it were a fact that being in a Republican administration, or I'm sorry, a more conservative-leaning administration or a more liberal-leaning administration had a better f- effect on the economy, they would be trumpeting that from every tower. <laughs> but it but it doesn't. And they've yeah. looked for that relationship for, for you know, a- over a century, but they can't yeah. find it. Yeah. So it doesn't matter, yet it does. Yeah. Yep. In terms of the actual decision making, yeah. and and just a you know every now and again we get this validation for what we're doing, and I was talking to an executive audience, and I mentioned uh, almost offhandedly this research I was doing, and and how we were finding this threat response and so forth, and I went on and finished the presentation and so forth, mm-hmm. and so I'm walking down the hall away from this, and suddenly this fellow chases me down the hall. He comes, he starts yelling <laughs> at me, and and, and I've got to tell you, my first instinct was to turn and run. Because, yeah, I was just saying, anybody <laughs> running after me after a presentation, it's rarely ever good. I don't, okay. yeah, I don't want to talk to this person. But he caught, I didn't run. He caught me, and he said, "What you said, it it, it happened to me." He mm-hmm. said, I, when Trump was elected in my business, I expected everything to fall apart. And so we cut all our, our um, new product development. We cut and we started amassing these resources and it didn't materialize. He mm-hmm. said, my major competitor, on the other hand, who is, uh, he, he knows this individual, he says, is more conservative leaning, went all in mm-hmm. and they outpaced us dramatically. And he said, so it it does have this effect. And we are now playing catch up to try to catch, and he said it took a long time to realize, wait, this is not going to materialize the way I thought. But yeah. but again, it, it's not that, that there's an actual effect there. There's just a perceived effect. All right. Uh, any unexpected things that you learned while working on this paper? You know, the in terms of the effect, and I this was another uh, conversation that after we publish these things, often we'll talk to reporters and and the the, the business press. And as I was talking to this reporter, she asked me, do you have any quotes? Can you find a quote from a CEO that gives an example of this? Mm-hmm. And and I I thought, well, let me go look. And I went and looked and I talked to MK and Ryan about it. And we all searched and we couldn't find any. And so when I went back to her and I said, no, there aren't any quotes. She said to me something that that bothered me because I, it's my research. She said, then then this doesn't matter. Mm. And I thought I said, but we're finding we are finding a significant and and economically meaningful effect. But then it's it hit me as I was pondering on that. It hit me that it's this is so it, it's so subtle that the CEOs don't actually say it. Maybe they're afraid to say it out loud. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe that is. Mm-hmm. But I really do think, and we mentioned in the paper that these are very subtle effects. Mm-hmm. So I think if someone came out and said, and, and, you know, there were plenty of people that will voice opinions about an administration. Yep. But if they came out and said, we're cutting R&D because of the current administration, I think they would get they just get, you know, a lot of flack for that. Yeah, but yeah. they so they so they just ease off. Yep. They ease off. These are very subtle types of changes. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I think ideology is so interesting is because it is not just a political party. It's a way you see the world. Right. And we all talk about the way we see the world as justifications for our actions. Mm-hmm. And we often don't see the blind spots uh, around it as well. Yeah. there's And, and I actually, and as I was studying this, I found this great quote from uh, John uh, F. Kennedy. It says, the great enemy of truth is very often not the lie, deliberate, contrived and dishonest. 
but the myth, persistent, persuasive, and unrealistic. We subject all facts to a prefabricated set of interpretations. We enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. And I thought nothing sums up <laughs> kind of the effect Man. of political ideology other than that, because it really, we just don't, we do it, we don't think. We don't think mm -hmm. about what's actually going on. We just are comforted that yeah. it comports with our political ideology. Did JFK have a social scientist as a speechwriter? I mean, that's this I think feels he did. like, yeah, I was like, this is good. <laughs> or maybe he, he was one. You know, maybe he, he was well, working he says on many PhD. things that were yeah. very profound. It's true. Yeah. All right. So let's expand a, a bit out. And it's going to be easy to do. I think we've been doing it a little bit already. You know, so I, I one of the things I, I, I appreciate about the paper, which I mentioned, is it takes into account the larger political climate. The idea of politically engaged corporate leaders is a very hot topic. Um, we don't have to get into it. Just Google it. You'll see. I think all sides. So the thing I've been interested in is I think both sides of this agree that employees or stakeholders care in some way about the ideologies of their leader, of their CEO. The debate is whether it's good to act on it for the sake of uh, reassuring people having people identify with you or potentially alienating people. And so a lot of the debate is, well, this will alienate your stakeholders. This won't. They'll, they, they're waiting for you to say something. And so where do you fall on this debate? You know, having having been steeped in this for a while uh, and in thinking about, you know, if you could, you, you talk to clients, you talk to CEOs and execs all the time. What do you think of the things that CEOs should keep in mind to guide their decisions about publicly signaling or not publicly signaling their own ideology? This is a great question, and and I love it. The um, personally, I feel that that political ideology is this kind of inherent set of contradictions. Hmm. There, the, the, if you unpack, and I'm not saying left or right, I'm saying both have this set of contradictions that are that are all kind of melded together into into an illogical uh, outcome often and so when um where i th i see in the in the workplace that this turns into a problem is when we try to take it as a package when mm -hmm. we try to to reconcile the illogic within that because it's just i i don't see it as reconcilable in any any tractable way what what i think a ceo and and in the workplace can be done is really unpacking the underlying assumptions mm -hmm. that we have. And, and really at the end of, end of the day, political ideology is just a set of means ends relationships, mm -hmm. a set of assumptions that, that help motivate decision-making. And perhaps these are assumptions that because we're lazy and we don't want to have to actually think about it. But as you challenge those assumptions, which by the way, is exactly what we try to do as scholars, right? Yep. That, that we're going out there and we state the assumption and we say, where are the boundary conditions for that? Yep. Does that hold in all cases? Almost nothing holds in all cases. Correct. And so you can, as, as leaders are able to say, we're challenging the assumption of whatever. Mm -hmm. I find that that it becomes a lot less politically charged because mm -hmm. people people are I it, I want to believe in my heart of hearts are seeking truth. Mm -hmm. They're they're seeking to live their lives and help society and so forth. There isn't a malicious uh undercurrent to all of this. But but when but when it all gets kind of jumbled up together, it's very hard to disentangle yeah. those assumptions. But if you call those assumptions out individually and you think about some of the hot button topics mm -hmm. such as economic policy or immigration or, or mm -hmm. just any number you know climate change yep. i think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody that says no we should pollute 
Yeah, no, that's not, that's just not, you know, the, the question really comes around the assumptions yeah. that, of, about where things are or yeah. that that we should we should try to stop human flourishing. That's yeah. not, you know, no one's going to uh, you know get behind that. But when we when we talk about those assumptions and because those assumptions are tied to resource allocation. And and as we as we act on those assumptions, resources are allocated. So let's have a conversation about those allocations mm-hmm. and what's driving them. And I'm sure reasonable minds can put aside their political differences and have a conversation. No. Well, well, you know, that's where I, you're again, optimistic. Yes, a, a, a colleague of mine here who who was um, very active here in Arizona in the immigration debate. Mm. He he sat down a liberal and a conservative, and they they talked about this. And he told me, he said, Matt, at the end of the day, what it came down to in terms of the immigration, they completely agreed on about ninety percent of it. But the 10% they disagreed on is whether the person should seek asylum while here in the United States or whether they should seek asylum in another country before they enter the United States. Uh-huh. Well, we can, that's a solvable problem. Mm-hmm. You know, we can, but, but when it gets kind of rolled up with a bunch of yeah. other things, then yeah. suddenly now it just, it, you, you get the battle lines and, it, and nothing really gets done. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect segue into my next question, which is, you know, kind of moving down from the, the the top level, the CEO level, I think the workplace is probably one of the few places right now where people are regularly interacting with others that do not share their ideology. We become very segregated in our leisurely, recreational, religious, you name it, residential, right? We see a lot of evidence. Um, one of the things you guys talk about is the the boundary condition. So what are some situations where you won't see this threat response from a CEO immediately based on kind of a change of the of the political climate? I'm curious if you think there are certain policies that organizations might think about implementing to maybe help reduce this level of these contentious ideology based uh, kind of behaviors, um, you know, thinking in internal to the organization. Right. And, and I, I guess it, it, it begins again with the, uh, the fundamental assumptions mm-hmm. and, and challenging those assumptions and, and having the, having some robust conversations. Yeah. Uh, you know, we get into these kind of emperor's new clothes discussions where everybody assumes that everybody around the table believes the same that they do when often that is not the case. We often try to stifle thought. And the, the, you know, the fact is that if we allow for a diversity of thought, if we allow for a diversity of, of opinion, if we, we have to give space to this challenging of assumptions, it's going to be less efficient. And I think a, a lot of organizations just say, no, we don't have time to have that conversation. We're going to just plow forward with these things because we all believe them when the employees may not. And as you say, as, as things have become much more siloed, and we don't have we don't have challenge to these assumptions, then I yeah. think they they calcify and yeah. and they become even more um, uh, a part of of who we are in our decision making because we haven't had that opportunity to challenge them. So I, I see that. And and the the great thing once again from from our world is the easy thing is you test it. Mm. Okay, you say X, I say Y. Let's conduct a test mm-hmm. and and let the data speak. Yep. And and if if the data come back and provide evidence of this, and and I think again it, it requires a degree of reasonableness. Yep. People are wanting to be uh, unreasonable that you you just can't. That's kind of a a, bound, a boundary condition on this. Yep. But if if they're allowing themselves to be reasonable, I think that that you know when the evidence does present and it says, hey, 
you know, it, this it suggests that that assumption is not right, or that mm-hmm. assumption is right, then you can move forward yeah. with that. Yeah, I get the biggest um, hindrance, you know, in in my view, and I, you know, I look at some of these things in my own research is not the ideology; it's the refusal to change your stance when given evidence. And that's the part that I'm just like, wow, you know, the social scientist in me is just like, well, this, I don't want an ideologue either way. Right. And this is right. where it kind of hurts us is that we don't, we're not able to test things and come back because I don't believe the test. I don't believe the data. Uh, I don't believe the premise uh, at all. Um, and so, you know, as academics, I think we try and do this uh, on college campuses. We try and do this. It's also uh, <laughs> a hot button issue. I don't know how things are at, at Arizona State with this, but being yeah. able to have these discussions uh, within a college campus is even now coming under some duress. Sure. And I think that also one other other thing is that has been very, very, very toxic to this whole discussion is the conception of your your opponent. I, I hate to use that term, but the, the person on the other um, end of the political spectrum as um, evil. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, mm-hmm. I think that once we once we begin to uh, g- give certain uh, motive to action, that you're doing this because you are you are an evil person, you are bad for malicious intent and, and all of that. It's very sinister in what they're doing. Then it's easy to to write them off Correct. and, and to de- because it's dehumanizing. And and this yeah. happened. I'm I'm saying this happens on the left and the right. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's dehumanizing, and and that just there's no excuse for that. Mm-hmm. There's no excuse for that. That um, people have their own motivations, but you know, we have to we have to begin with a place at at a place where people are trying to do the best they can with what they have, and a different set of background, a different background, a different set of lived experiences will probably yield a different set of assumptions. Well put. Well put. I will leave it there. Uh, I want to finish us off with two two questions that are stables here at the Lit Review. So the first is thinking about what's piquing your curiosity uh, right now. You know, a lot of research in our field is driven by phenomena that we see that we don't quite understand. And so I'm mm-hmm. curious what, you know, it doesn't have to be ideology related. What are the, the the kind of things that really pique your curiosity right now? The one that is I just find fascinating, and it's it's kind of an endless source of anecdotes and and and, and things that, that just in 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 the business press is the activist investors, mm. the activist investors. So for so long we've had this kind of stodgy view of corporate governance, and it's been you know you've got the the board and you've got the the management and this economic agency theory relationship between those two. And then you may have institutional investors or the market and, and all of these players, but everything was pretty stable. I mean, not completely stable, but pretty stable suddenly. And, and, you know, I think, I don't think they would push back on the term, but we have these kind of almost terrorist, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. activist investors that come in and really blow things up. Yep. And uh, they they're doing it in a way, and it's really changing decision making. Mm. And and I'm doing some work with John Busenbark on this right now. And one of the fascinating things is as as this activist investor presents that the monitoring, if the board and the the management are under uh, attack, mm-hmm. then suddenly now you have an alignment 
between them where you where you would hope or economic theory would would suggest that there should be you know uh Some checks and say, yeah it checks them yeah. out yeah. a little bit of an adversarial we're monitoring mm-hmm. you we're watching you but now suddenly they're all aligned in purpose mm. and and because of this this uh, attacker this this activist investor and i think it's it's great it's creating a number of dynamics that i think uh that present as as great experiments to kind of pull back some of these relationships that we've taken for granted in yeah. corporate governance. Oh, no, that's very cool. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing what you and John cook up. I'm sure it'll be interesting and empirically very uh, stout. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how's a booze and bark joke? Yeah. All right, uh, and anything that you are reading right now for fun? Well, I I just, you know, a, f- a friend of mine, Paul Godfrey, he just gave me a, a copy of this book called Clean. Mm-hmm. And it is it looks at the history of uh, Ecolab. And Ecolab from its founding was a, they didn't use these terms, but it was a sustainable company. They began with the whole belief that, that, their, that their actions should be sustaining not only to their employees, but to the environment and so forth. Mm-hmm. He talks about this in terms of, you know, using a, a, a term from biology of DNA. It mm-hmm. was in their DNA. Mm-hmm. And I think met much of the challenge that comes now as uh, as a number of these um, sustainability things are, are implemented, it really, it's, it's almost like it, it, it goes against the DNA of the company. Mm-hmm. And so you see them not applied well you know, whether it's greenwashing or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. or, or or just in kind of a symbolic way. Mm-hmm. And and what they're what they're looking at with this kind of extended case study yeah. is it, it really needs to be part of of what the company is all about from a fundamental level. And you can't just kind of layer it on. And so it's it's great. And and these deep case studies are often fun because you get to see, you know, not just an episode of the company, but the but the entire trajectory. Yeah. Who's the author? That's Paul Godfrey and Emilio R. Tenuta. Hmm. And he, I believe he is the chief sustainability officer at uh, Ecolabs. All right. So even in your leisure time, you're reading nonfiction, <laughs> deep dives about identity in organizations. I love it. That's fine. Yeah, I'm a boring I mean, guy. <laughs> no, you love what you do. And yeah. so, you know, in your spare time, you do it. I, I do the same thing. Every time I'm reading something and it's... Uh, organizational or it's about markets my wife's like you don't aren't you tired of that i was like well this one's good yeah <laughs> this that's one's right. different yeah no one's that's making your day good. job do something else <laughs> well matt thank you uh so much for for joining uh us today on the lit review uh this has been a, a great time talking about these really important topics and um hope to speak with you again sometime or run into you at a academy or some conference down the road soon thank you so much for the opportunity All right, that's it for the Lit Review. I appreciate Matt for his time, and I appreciate you all for listening. If you like this show, please subscribe to the Lit Review podcast. You can find us by searching The Lit Review, an AMJ podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast platforms, as well as on the AMJ homepage. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we have a weekly Twitter Spaces show called AMJ Radio Live, hosted by AOM Connect on Twitter Spaces. I'll be joining the show once a month to provide a behind-the-scenes look at the podcast and answer any listener questions. Thanks to the Academy of Management for the support for this podcast. Special thanks to my producer, Holly Fearing, for all of her work behind the scenes. 
Our theme music is produced by Key to Life. This is Sekou Burmese. See you next time. Take care and be good. Key to Life.